latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and working with you to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it and trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. And welcome again to this podcast, which was pre-recorded for airing on AmericasWebRadio.com on Wednesday evening, March the 16th. Hope that you've been feeling well lately, and especially those of you who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, otherwise uh, known as winter depression, uh, where now, a few days into being back on daylight savings time, and uh, the longer days certainly should help you, even though for now it's a little bit darker, a little bit longer in the morning. I found it interesting to note that uh, several states, especially in New England, (laughs) are making some political noise about wanting to permanently adopt daylight savings time. Uh, because in those uh, far northern uh, latitudes, uh, they actually have much earlier sunsets than anywhere else in the country when we're not on daylight savings time. Um, interesting to see what happens. Uh, and there are a lot of other places in the country who don't like turning the clocks back again in early November and want to stick with it. Um, states or other localities can opt out of the regular time changes, but uh, it does have to be uh, approved uh, by the government, and uh, they just have to apply and make a good enough case. There are certain jurisdictions that don't make these time changes. Why in Arizona, just to name a couple. Uh, So we'll see. Um, A lot of the reasons for it, such as saving electricity, so on and so forth, Uh, it doesn't really seem to make a difference. So why not stay with daylight saving time year-round? I, for one, am in favor of it. Uh, Light is an antidepressant. Um, Even those who don't suffer at all from seasonal affective disorder, let's face it, we all feel better when it's sunny outside, when it's light later in the evening. Um, You know, even just a, a day or so or more of cloudy, Rainy weather is enough to have an, at least a noticeably negative impact on the mood. Uh, so let's see what happens with these developments in New England and see if it spreads to other areas about <clears throat> extending daylight saving time year-round. Well, first up on tonight's podcast, <clears throat> an article about some research showing that or or rather claiming that depression is more than a mental disorder, it affects the whole organism. 
And when I saw that uh, title, I'm like, well, of course. And, you know, I really don't agree with the whole distinction, mental versus physical. Uh, you know, mental certainly describes the workings of the mind and functions uh, like thinking and consciousness and mood and emotions. But when you get right down to it, everything mental is physical because without the intact functioning of the brain, and which is certainly very much a physical organ, okay, which has chemical and electrical impulses and interactions, then we don't have anything that we refer to as mental. So ultimately, it's all physical, and therefore depression is a physical illness. But then as far as the idea of it affecting the whole organism, absolutely. Uh, if you're depressed, you don't sleep or eat well, you feel tired uh, and can't think clearly. Uh, so it, it definitely is uh, a disease of the whole organism. So let's look at this research see what they found and why they made this claim. It was an international team of researchers, and they say they demonstrated for the first time that depression is more than a mental disorder, that depression causes important alterations of oxidative stress. So it should be considered a systemic disease since it affects the whole organism. Now, oxidative stress takes a little bit of explaining. All biological reactions um, potentially can release uh, oxidative products of those biological chemical reactions. And uh, you may have heard of free radicals. These are uh, potentially harmful compounds that are released as part of uh, oxidation from chemical reactions, and if they're accumulated in excessive amounts, they can cause damage to tissues and organs. So that's what's referred to by oxidative stress. Now, the results of this research could explain the significant association that depression has with cardiovascular diseases and cancer, and why people suffering from depression die younger uh, the article doesn't mention it, but I'll also throw in there why there's such an association with depression and diabetes. The simple fact is, you know, you see this oxidative stress playing a role in any of these chronic diseases, heart disease, uh, lung disease, and diabetes. Now, <clears throat> at the same time, this research may help finding new therapeutic targets for the prevention and treatment of depression. The research is a meta-analysis where they took previous studies, 29 of them, uh, which if you add up all the subjects was almost 4,000 people, and it's the first detailed work of its kind about what happens in the total organism of people who suffer from depression. It studies the imbalance between the individual increase of various oxidative stress parameters, especially the accumulation of a chemical called 
malondialdehyde, which is a biomarker used to measure the oxidative deterioration of cell membranes, and the decrease in antioxidant substances. Uh, that's also part of the whole picture of oxidative stress. We have antioxidants that help to clear out these harmful chemicals. If they're in low supply, that's part of oxidative stress. So these helpful antioxidants include things such as uric acid, zinc, and the superoxide dismutase enzyme. Uh, superoxide dismutase is something that plays a key role in uh, helping the body uh, clear out free radicals and other signs of oxidative stress. These researchers have demonstrated that after receiving the usual treatment against depression, the patient's levels of malondialdehyde, again a biomarker looking at oxidative deterioration of cell membranes, are significantly lower to the point that they are indistinguishable from healthy individuals. So that's quite remarkable. I can't recall ever hearing before of where there was a biomarker that was elevated when you're depressed and you can treat the depression. And when it's successfully treated, you can see that biomarker decrease. That is actually quite remarkable. Now, um, at the same time, your primary care physician or even myself can't just send you to the lab and like, okay, let's send you for a malondialdehyde level blood test. But still, um, it is a significant discovery that shows here's a biomarker that's elevated when you're depressed and it goes down when you feel better. Then they also looked at zinc and uric acid levels. Again, those are antioxidant compounds. They increase until they reach normal levels when someone is treated for depression. Remember, in the depressed patient, they found that those levels were lower. So you also see, um, in addition to signs of oxidative stress, decrease with successful treatment of depression, you see antioxidants increase. However, they did not see that same increase happen with superoxide dismutase. Um, hopefully someday they'll be able to tease apart, you know, okay, well, what are the processes that lead to uh, improving levels of that enzyme? Um, it seems rather disappointing that successful treatment of depression would not uh, result in elevated levels of superoxide dismutase because that really helps to counteract the negative effects of oxidative stress. Well, the bottom line is that studies like this, I think, really help further the goal uh, that I've always had for uh, this podcast and in general in my work, reducing the stigma associated with having depression. Why do I say that? Well, because this is proof that it is a biological disease of the whole organism, in that it shows when someone is in a state of depression, the entire organism is under a state of stress. Uh, the signs of that stress are building up in the blood. The healthful 
chemicals that counteract the stress are in shorter supply and with treatment the opposite takes place. The signs of that stress decrease. The helpful chemicals that relieve that stress increase. Uh, so that's really something that gives you strong evidence of the physical, biological nature of the disease of depression. Well, we're going to take a break here, and we'll come back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after this break for some commercials. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Now here's a study about how a brain tune-up may aid self-motivation, allowing people to see their own brain activity might help them motivate themselves. You perhaps may have heard of biofeedback. This is where giving you direct real-time information about some bodily process or measurement enables you to learn how to manipulate that very measurement. Uh, One of the most common examples of biofeedback is where you give someone uh, readings of your skin temperature, Uh, let's say of your hands or fingers. And so you see the reading of your skin temperature in front of you, and you learn what things you can do to get your hands to warm up. Thinking warm thoughts, as it were. Um, It sounds strange and far-fetched, but it can very easily and readily be learned and taught. It's a skill that has to be developed and practiced. I knew someone in high school who had 
extremely cold hands and they went for biofeedback treatment uh, and uh, they learned what to think in their mind to get their hands to warm up and it was to make a red light on a machine uh, come on and when this red light was coming on that meant that their fingers and hands were getting warmer well the technique was so effective that whenever they went to a red light when they were driving the car their hands got warmer uh, so this is a very well established technique and been around for many decades there is a subcategory of biofeedback called neurofeedback or neurobiofeedback in which the <clears throat> brain waves are what you are being given feedback about and you learn and figure out what types of thoughts to have uh, or how to manipulate certain types of brain activity on your own by giving this by getting this uh, real-time information about your brain so that's the principle about which this study at Duke University was based. Uh, volition powers us through innumerable daily tasks, but could we lead healthier, more productive lives if we could learn to control the parts of our brain most essential to volition? A new spin on the technique called neurofeedback has allowed scientists to take the first step in understanding how to manipulate neurotransmitter circuits involved in volition using thoughts and imagery. The methods may one day inform the treatment of depression or ADHD. Now, <clears throat> the experiment was uh, where subjects received real-time feedback using an MRI scan that showed activity in a reward center of their brain. Without feedback, they were unable to reliably increase activity in a region of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, but a fluctuating thermometer helped them learn and adopt effective strategies by thinking about motivating themselves. Their self-generated boosts in the ventral tegmental area, or VTA, activation then worked even after the thermometer display was removed. At best, we motivate ourselves every day to get dressed and to go to work or school. Although there are larger incentives at work, it's our own volition that powers us through are innumerable daily tasks. If we could learn to control the motivational centers of our brains that drive volition, would it lead us to more healthier, productive lives? So it's using this new brain imaging strategy, the Duke scientists have now taken the first step in understanding how to manipulate neural circuits using thoughts and imagery. The technique was described in the March 16 issue of the journal Neuron as part of a larger uh, approach of biofeedback, neurobiofeedback, which gives participants a dynamic readout of brain activity, in this case from a brain area critical 
for motivation. These methods show a direct route for manipulating brain networks centrally involved in healthy brain function and daily behavior. Neurofeedback is a specialized form of biofeedback, as I said, which is a technique that allows people to monitor aspects of their own physiology, such as heart rate and skin temperature. It can help generate strategies to overcome anxiety and stress or to cope with other medical conditions. Neurofeedback has historically relied on electroencephalography, or EEG, in which patterns of electrical activity of the brain are monitored non-invasively by electrodes attached to the scalp. But these measures provide only rough estimates of where activity occurs in the brain. In contrast, the new study employed functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, which measures changes in blood oxygen levels, allowing more precisely localized measurements of brain activity. The researchers have been working on ways to use thoughts and behavior to tune brain function for the past eight years. In this study, they've developed tools allowing them to analyze complex brain imaging data in real time and to display it to participants as neurofeedback while they are in the fMRI scanner. This study focused on the ventral tegmental area, or VTA, a small area deep within the brain that is a major source of dopamine, a neurochemical well known for its role in motivation, experiencing rewards, learning, and memory. Dopamine is our pleasure, reward, motivation chemical. It's also important for libido. It's also important for thinking and focus and concentration. According to previous research, when people are given incentives to remember specific images, an increase in VTA activation before the image appears predicts whether the participants are going to successfully remember the image. External incentives like money work well to stimulate the VTA, but it was unclear whether people could exercise this area on their own. In the new study, the team encouraged participants who were in the scanner to generate feelings of motivation using their own personal strategies during 20-second intervals. They weren't able to raise their VTA activity consistently on their own. But when the scientists provided participants with neurofeedback from the VTA, presented in the form of a fluctuating thermometer, participants were able to learn which strategies worked and ultimately adopt more effective strategies. Compared to control groups, the neurofeedback-trained participants successfully elevated their VTA activity. So in other words, if you 
are in the scanner and you're trying to improve the activity in this area uh, that shows more activity in line with motivation, self-motivation, without getting direct feedback from that area of the brain, it's hard to do. But if you give the subject some sort of meter, something that looks like a thermometer, but just some sort of way of measuring, okay, here's the activity in this area. Uh, try to come up with thoughts or images uh, that will get this activity to increase. Eventually, people are able to figure out how to do it. Participants reported using a variety of different motivational strategies, from imagining parents or coaches encouraging them to playing out hypothetical scenarios in which their efforts were rewarded. The self-generated boost in VTA activation worked even after the thermometer display was removed. Only the participants who had received accurate neurofeedback were able to consistently raise their VTA. Uh, now, their VTA activity. So, in other words, the interesting part is once the subjects learned how to do this, they didn't even need the feedback anymore, and they were able to do it. Because this is the first demonstration of its kind, there is still much to be understood, but these tools could offer benefits for everyone, particularly those with depression or attention problems. The neurofeedback training also activated other regions involving, involved in learning and experiencing rewards, confirming that at least in the short term, the brain changes its activity more broadly as a result of neurofeedback. One caveat of the study is that the team has not tested whether the neurofeedback drove changes in behavior. The group is working on those studies now and also plans to conduct the same study in participants with depression and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It be interesting to see what types of feedback they give and from what areas of the brain when it comes to uh, trying this technique out for depression and ADHD uh, so that people might be able to boost their mood and or their ability to concentrate by conjuring up certain thoughts or images uh, and getting feedback on uh, how they're doing that affects activity in certain areas of the brain. Time for another commercial break. We'll be right back after that with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's podcast, very important findings in research into Alzheimer's disease. There are brain scans that show how Alzheimer's emerges. For the first time, scientists have used brain scans to track the development of Alzheimer's disease in adults with no symptoms. The technique may lead to early detection and treatment of the disease. Until now, a definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease could only be made via autopsy, in which a medical examiner observes the extent of the spread of two rogue proteins in the brain associated with the disease called beta amyloid and tau. For living patients, doctors make the diagnosis of probable Alzheimer's disease based on observations of patients' behavior, memory, and writing and drawing skills, coupled with family medical history and occasionally brain imaging. The field of brain imaging has advanced, however, Researchers at the University of California at Berkeley developed a technique using positron emission tomography, or PET scanning, to more accurately measure both beta amyloid and tau. Their study, published in the current issue of the journal Neuron, involves 55 adults. Five were ages 20 to 26, 33 were retired adults ages 64 to 90, all cognitively healthy, and 15 were patients, ages 53 to 77, who had been diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's dementia. 
The results of the PET imaging on these participants mirrored the established stages of Alzheimer's disease in deceased patients in terms of showing the degree of the tau protein accumulation in the brain. Previous attempts to image the progression of Alzheimer's disease using PET revealed beta amyloid but not much tau and merely having beta amyloid accumulation is not tantamount to developing Alzheimer's disease. There have been great strides in understanding Alzheimer's disease because of being able to see the accumulation of amyloid in the brain. However, amyloid seems to be only part of the story. It correlates poorly with cognitive symptoms, for example. Tau correlates better with cognitive symptoms. The study revealed that higher levels of tau in the medial temporal lobe, the memory center of the brain, were associated with greater declines in episodic memory, the type of memory used to code new information. The researchers tested episodic memory by asking subjects to recall a list of words viewed 20 minutes earlier. Their ability to remember correlated with lower tau levels. Yet, like beta amyloid, tau accumulation also appears to be natural and not necessarily indicative of Alzheimer's. Tau is basically present in almost every aging brain. So, researchers speculate that it's the interplay between tau and beta amyloid that may be driving Alzheimer's disease. While higher levels of tau in the medial temporal lobe were linked to more problems with episodic memory, the researchers saw more serious declines in overall cognitive function when tau spread outside this region to other parts of the brain, such as the neocortex. That spread appears to be connected to the presence of amyloid plaques in the brain. Amyloid may somehow facilitate the spread of tau, or tau may initiate the deposition of amyloid. When amyloid starts to show up, you start to see tau in other parts of the brain, and that is when real problems begin, and that may be the beginning of symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. There's no cure for Alzheimer's, which affects an estimated 5.3 million Americans, according to the Alzheimer's Association. Earlier detection may help the patient better prepare for the disease and to begin a course of medication once the symptoms appear. The earlier detection and intervention is crucial uh, to limit the degree of disability and the impairment of quality of life, not only of the patient, but that of the caregivers. Also announced this month, the Alzheimer's Association has launched the Imaging Dementia Evidence for Amyloid Scanning, or IDEAS, I-D-E-A-S, study, which hopes to recruit more than 18,000 patients with symptoms of cognitive decline for PET scan analysis. This study will not include the PET scan for tau, however, because the technique is too new and the PET tracers for tau 
have not yet been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Other researchers have developed a sensitive tracer for tau, as described in a paper in the February issue of the Journal of Nuclear Medicine. The tracer could work in this UC Berkeley study in an experimental protocol, and they are hoping to collaborate. Uh, we can only hope that there is developed an instrument for early detection using PET scans of the brain because without it, by the time Alzheimer's is diagnosed, it's too late to intervene in any useful fashion and uh, try to uh, improve cognitive function or mitigate the decline. At that point, it's simply a matter of telling the patient and family uh, to prepare for the inevitable decline. So hopefully these new PET techniques and new tracers to investigate not only amyloid but tau will uh, advance uh, the field of diagnosing and treating Alzheimer's disease. Next, let's turn our attention to another very serious, devastating uh, neurodegenerative disease. It's schizophrenia. And <clears throat> you might not think of that as a neurodegenerative disease, uh, but like most major psychiatric syndromes, it is. Uh, there certainly are documented abnormalities in the development of brain tissue in schizophrenia. And now scientists have found a gene mutation or defect that raises the risk of schizophrenia by 35-fold. Scientists say they have conclusive evidence that changes to a gene called SETD1A can dramatically raise the risk of developing schizophrenia, a finding that should help the search for new treatments. The team of researchers said damaging changes to the gene happen very rarely, but can increase the risk of schizophrenia 35-fold. Changes in SETD1A also raise the risk of a range of neurodevelopmental disorders. In a study published in the journal Nature Neuroscience, the team found that mutations that remove the function of SETD1A are almost never found in the general population, but affect 1 in 1,000 people with schizophrenia. While this gene fault explains only a very small fraction of all schizophrenia patients, it provides an important clue to the wider biology of the disorder. Schizophrenia is a severe and common psychiatric illness that affects around 1 in 100 people worldwide. Symptoms include disruptions in thinking, language, and perception, and patients can also suffer psychotic experiences, such as hearing voices or seeing things or having delusions. While the exact causes of schizophrenia are unknown, research to date suggests a combination of physical, genetic, psychological, and environmental factors that can make people more likely to develop it. The study results were surprising and exciting. Psychiatric disorders are complex diseases involving many genes 
and it is extremely difficult to find conclusive proof of the importance of a single gene. It's highly unlikely, for example, that one genetic defect would be responsible for a psychiatric illness in the way that one genetic defect can cause sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. The so far limited understanding of schizophrenia's causes has hampered efforts to develop new treatments. Current drugs are only effective in alleviating some of the symptoms and they can lead to very troubling side effects and are ineffective in a sizable minority of cases. This new finding about defects in this gene, although only explaining a small fraction of cases, may guide researchers toward new pathways that could be targets for treatments or medicines in a larger number of cases. The study analyzed the genome sequences of more than 16,000 people from Britain, Finland, and Sweden, including those from 5,341 people with schizophrenia. Damage to the SETD1A gene was found in 10 of the schizophrenia patients and surprisingly also in six other people with other developmental and neuropsychiatric disorders such as intellectual disability. This shows the same gene is involved in both schizophrenia and developmental disorders and suggests they may share common biological pathways. Uh, this reminds me of some of the genetic uh, defects that are uh, have that have factors in common when you compare Down syndrome with Alzheimer's disease. Well, in any case, it is heartening that uh, scientists are continuing to hone in on underlying biological causes for schizophrenia because it is a very devastating, disabling disease, and we need much better treatments than the ones we have. They eliminate some of the symptoms for some of the people some of the time at best, uh, but the side effect burden is extremely heavy, uh, starting with tremendous weight gain, diabetes, and cognitive dysfunction. We're going to take another commercial break here. We'll be right back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. 
You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. You always hear me talk about in the intro to the podcast, one of the things I want to help people do is rid yourself of bad habits, right? All right, so let's talk about that. It is March 16th now, so how is that New Year's resolution to quit smoking going? I hope it's going really well. I hope you quit successfully. But if you didn't, and uh, or you know someone who el- else who's trying to quit and hasn't done so successfully, then this next item will be of interest. <clears throat> Turns out that quitting smoking abruptly has the best long-term results, at least according to uh, some experts, and we'll get into what they're talking about now. Um, I know plenty of people who have quit smoking gradually, and they've done so very successfully. So even before I read the article, my reaction to the title of the article was, wait a minute, when it comes to quitting smoking, there's no such thing as one method fits all. Uh, But anyway, let's see what they're saying. So people who quit smoking all at once are more likely to be successful than those who cut down on cigarettes gradually, according to this new study. For many people, the obvious way to quit smoking is to cut down gradually until they stop. However, with smoking, the norm is to advise people to stop all at once. And this study found evidence to support that, at least according to the researchers. What they found was that more people managed to quit when they stopped smoking all at once than when they gradually reduced before quitting. The researchers randomly assigned almost 700 adult smokers to either an abrupt quitting or gradual reduction group. Each person set a quit day of two weeks after they entered the study and saw a research nurse once a week until then. Half of people preferred to cut down gradually, 
A third preferred abrupt quitting, and the rest had no preference before the study began, but preferences did not affect which group they were sorted into. In the gradual reduction group, the nurse created a reduction schedule for participants to cut back on cigarettes by 75% over those two weeks and provided participants with nicotine patches and a choice of short-acting nicotine replacement gum, lozenges, nasal spray, sublingual tablets, inhaler, or mouth spray during the reduction period. In the abrupt quitting group, the participants also were given nicotine patches of 21 milligrams per 24 hours, as some evidence suggests doing this before quitting may increase success, but they were not giving any short-acting products and were told to smoke as usual until the quit date. Now let's uh, pause here for a minute. Right off the bat, you're talking about drastically different methods. Uh, so, you know, I was curious at this point reading about the research, you know, how they can make comparisons. All right, so let's see what happens. Four weeks later, 40% of the gradual reduction group were still not smoking, compared to 49%, or almost half, of the abrupt quit group has not, had not been smoking, as verified by chemical breath analysis. Those who said they preferred gradually cutting down before the study began were less likely than others to still be abstinent from cigarettes at that point. By six months, 15% of gradual quitters and 22% of abrupt quitters were still abstinent. Um, <clears throat> now, overall, that's pretty discouraging to think that um, not even a quarter of the uh, better outcome of uh, patients or participants, rather, had still quit smoking after six months. Just goes to show you how insidious addiction to cigarettes is. This research, by the way, was reported in the March 14th issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. There is a lot of evidence, so the researchers say, to suggest that if you would like to quit, the best way to do so is by seeking help in the form of behavioral counseling and a treatment such as nicotine replacement therapy, that is patches or gum, or Chantix, which is a prescription medication specifically designed to aid smoking cessation. However, there are also benefits of calling quit lines, and uh, there are national smoking quit lines, there's a Georgia state quit line, particularly if these quit lines go on to provide proactive support for quitters. Those who choose to quit gradually are often more addicted and have failed to quit abruptly several times before. About one-third of quit attempts include gradually cutting down. The decision to quit for most smokers is a sudden one that often occurs because something happens to motivate them. With abrupt cessation, they can act on the decision to quit immediately while still highly motivated. In fact, half of smokers quit on the same day they decide to quit. So there's the 
strike while the iron is hot approach, I guess you could call it. You know, as soon as you get the m- strong feeling or motivation, that's it. I'm done. I have to stop. I'm going to quit. I'm not going to smoke another one. Then fine. Do it right then and there. Uh, but <clears throat> while that may work for some people, not for everybody. The authors say the new results should be useful for people who want to quit but don't have a preference for how to do it. In this case, they say we can tell smokers and the people who treat them that the best approach to try is abrupt quitting rather than gradual quitting. In most cases, healthcare services already take this approach, so they say no major change is necessary. Well, um, I would say this. Um, let's hold the phone. While 700 study subjects is a pretty decent amount of subjects, um, and the study was, for the most part, well-designed and well-done, um, I still am a little bit concerned about the drastically different methods they use. You know, in the abrupt quitting group, they were given patches and no short-acting products. In the uh, gradual reduction group, they were given every available treatment. You know, I just think that the design is not exactly uh, fair and appropriate to see a definite difference between the groups that you could consider reliable. Um, There is no such thing as one-size-fits-all for smoking cessation. It has to be whatever feels better to the smoker. Uh, there are some smokers who feel that they, if they're going to quit at all, it must be abruptly because they would find the very notion of gradual reduction uh, to, to be extremely difficult and couldn't tolerate it. And likewise, there are smokers who are the exact opposite who find the idea of abrupt quitting to be torture, and if they're going to do it at all, they have to do it gradually and abruptly. Um, I am much more in favor of saying that there has to be an individualized approach that you have to meet the smoker where they're at in terms of um, their level of motivation and uh, what their preferences are and have everything on the table available. Uh, From Chantix, the prescription drug that's used for smoking cessation, but which may have very strong side effects. And by that, I mean Chantix is quite notorious for side effects such as nausea, which can be quite debilitating, and insomnia and nightmares, which can be quite debilitating. And uh, also there are very strong warnings about Chantix potentially causing or aggravating depression, even thoughts of suicide. Um, And I've also had patients experience anger, agitation, and irritability. Uh, For the most part, if someone is already on medication to regulate their mood, they should be protected against this. But it's still a very strong caution. And in fact, the uh, Federal Aviation Administration banned airline pilots from taking Chantix because of these potential mood-altering effects. And then then you have Welbutrin, which is an antidepressant, but also coincidentally helps with smoking cessation. Uh, And that has side effects potentially too, such as 
uh, heart arrhythmias, uh, insomnia, and uh, tremor or, j- or jitteriness. And then all of the nicotine replacement methods like they talked about in the study. You have the nicotine patches, which if you're a heavy smoker, a 21 milligram patch is most appropriate. If you're a moderate smoker, 14, or a very light smoker, the 7 milligram patch. And you can use those different strengths to taper down. Start with the 21. When you're used to that, go down to the 14. When you're used to that, go down to the 7 before you stop completely. Then there's the nicotine gum or lozenge um, or inhaler spray and so on. Those things are good if you are trying to quit and you need something to take to treat periodic cravings. Um, whether it's the gum or lozenge, any of those things. The gum, you have to be very careful not to chew like juicy fruit because if you do that, you're going to release too much nicotine all at once and make yourself pretty sick. Um, So really, there are lots of methods available. They all should be offered to the patient trying to quit smoking. Uh, Just go at the problem uh, with any and all tools. Uh, See what works best for them. And understand, too, that while, remember when we were talking about the study, it seemed discouraging that after six months in the gradual quit group, only 15% were still abstinent from cigarettes. In the abrupt quit group, 22%, neither very good, right? It's normal that it takes several attempts at quitting to quit successfully. And previous research has documented that the more times people try to quit, the greater the likelihood they'll be able to quit successfully. So don't get discouraged uh, by multiple attempts. Keep trying. Learn from each attempt and uh, try it again when you're ready. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I thank you so much for listening and hope you found the information I've enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative. And I sincerely hope that until we get together again next week, You have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.